0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Pod In Search of Man, the official Heschel High School student podcast. I am your host, Ilana Nussbaum Cohen, and I hope you're as excited as I am for this year's season of the Pod. The podcast gives a sneak peek into the high school, sharing stories that one might not otherwise get to hear. To kick this season off, we're going to take a look back from a few weeks ago to a very special program that we had. Please enjoy this first episode of season two of Pod In Search of Man. ago, the Heschel community gathered to hear from Ruth Messenger, the former Manhattan Borough President and president of the American Jewish World Service. Leading up to the midterm elections, Ruth spoke about the importance of civic engagement even for us as high school students. After her talk, I joined the co-editors-in-chief of the Heschel Helios, Mariel Priven and Abby Fisher, to hear Ruth elaborate on some of the concepts she shared in her talk. The following recording is that interview. So enjoy
1: Let's start at the beginning. You gave a pretty unique introduction where you thank the Lenope people for their stewardship of the land. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on Yeah,
2: it's, um, I would say, two origins. One is um, among the, the global issues that American Jewish World Service works on, um, as we've developed our portfolio over the 18 years that I was there, probably looking earlier on at, you know, denial of... Um, Uh, at issues of conflict and peacemaking, at issues of growing democracy, at issues of agriculture and hunger, it only gradually sort of dawned on us, learning from the groups we were working with, that the question of who owns the land and who abuses the land is critical to the lives of these, they're called smallholder indigenous farmers, which means they're local people and they have very small plots of land because If a grandfather had a small plot of land and it's divided among four children and 14 grandchildren, it's like little. Um, And that land, their rights to their own land were consistently, are consistently being abused by their own governments, by multinational corporations. So I just became more and more aware of the issue of what we call land rights and climate justice. But then that dovetailed with, 10 years ago now, I actually had a sabbatical and I spent a month in Australia and a month in New Zealand with my husband. And I was overwhelmed by having people start every public event in the same way, every school event in the same way, every museum and public building has a sign this land was originally, and there's some different indigenous groups so it's not always exactly the same and the language is different. But frankly, as an educator, which I like to think of myself as being in some ways, I was like, wow, what does it mean to have this said virtually? There's no student in Australia and New Zealand, and now I understand Canada is doing this as well, who doesn't hear this message once a day. And this whole notion of one, knowing where you come from, and two, knowing in this case, that you actually owe, owe, owe something to those ancestors, not just like." your ancestors because they escaped from Germany or my ancestors because they chose to leave Romania, but, but earlier ancestors who took care of the land and water. And in this city, which we never think of and never talk about, except for the two months after Storm Sandy, you know we are at, at, at the risk of endless land rights violations. And if you go out to those communities in Brooklyn and Queens with all due respect, not only is the re- rebuilding slow. But most of it's terrible. They're building people's, building their own houses and building other houses right back again at sea level. And we don't have the infrastructure to withstand that. So this is not taking care of the land. So you know, I can't make it. It's a one-woman campaign that won't get very large. But I've just been moved to sort of start doing it. I'm waiting for the people to say, oh, don't start the way you always start, because that will be a good debate.
3: <laughs> <laughs> After discussing that, you also mentioned that Rabbi Heschel had been very influential in your life. I wonder if you could just elaborate on that a little
2: bit. Yeah, a little bit of it is personal. Um, My mother was a woman of many opinions. Um, She was well known for that and um, she worked at the seminary, so she was dealing all the time with Jewish issues, interpretation of Jewish issues to a Jewish community, interpretation of Jewish issues to a broader community, and some of the people that she worked closely with um, were people who drove her to distraction, and some of them were people that she just ended up admiring more and more, and one of those was Heschel. And she particularly liked Heschel and liked the fact that the seminary created a place for Heschel, although his Judaism was not, was very influenced by his own past. Anyway. So he sort of became someone to listen to, so I would say that that had some kind of you know, powerful parent-to-child message. But mostly it probably is that he was a visible, powerful social justice leader of the Jewish community as during the time I came of age. So during the time that I was your age right up through young adulthood, I mean, when Heschel and King were most active about um, opposing, uh, promoting civil rights, and opposing the Vietnam War, that's what I was doing, and I was 24. So, it, and the quote that I gave you, which is in your um, Heschel commitments about um, all are responsible, um, is the, probably the single sentence that most influences, influence, has influenced my life. And when I was in public office, like all council members and borough, borough presidents, I had a newsletter this was before everything was online so it was actually a printed newsletter and that quote was on the masthead of, the, of my newsletter for 20 years.
1: I know that you made a point throughout your speech to say that this wasn't a partisan speech and you made a strong point to try and stick to the facts but I'm wondering in a time when so many people view the selection of certain facts as partisan or even the facts as partisan, are you ever hesitant to share certain facts that you know certain political parties often reference um, for fear of alienating someone based on their political beliefs, um,
2: I was um, I was really careful today because mm-hmm. I heard from students and I heard from parents the other night that there were different opinions in the school, and I just felt like to have someone like if you if you, you know spend three seconds Googling me, you'll know not only that I'm a Democrat but what my positions are on a great many issues. So. I thought it was not a place to talk about that and to try to emphasize virtually all of what I talked about um, was, um, was non-partisan. Of course there are arguments about facts, but there are a lot of facts that are facts and not opinions, and I'm very comfortable sharing those facts even though they will make people, some people will say, oh, that's your opinion, and I can usually point to the fact that it's a fact. But I actually went out of my way today not to, to use some facts, but not to use facts that I thought that some significant piece of the student body would say, oh, well, she's just partisan. I think it's people are too quick to sort of say see partisan and divisive. There were two points, I don't know how closely you could possibly be listening, but I almost said, when I mentioned lobbying your congressperson, I almost said, if the Democrats win the House, Next Tuesday, Jerry will be the chair of the Judiciary Committee, which is hugely important. But I thought that that was, even though it's a fact, that if the Democrats win, he will have a powerful position. I stopped myself from saying that because I didn't want it to come across as partisan. But that's a fact, and most audiences I would certainly share that because mm-hmm. it's a fact. Mm-hmm. people say, oh, she's in favor of the Democrats winning. That's true, but that's not what I said. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You started speaking a little bit about education. I'm curious because especially in this school there's been a big issue of students feeling uncomfortable sharing their beliefs in class because they're worried that it'll impact their grades because they're worried that their teachers will disagree with them. Um, Where do you stand on the role of teachers? Can they share their political opinions? Uh, Should students feel uncomfortable?
2: Uh, Yes and no. I think teachers can and often should share their opinions as long as they're not only teaching their opinions. And in a school like this, I don't think, I, I don't think there's anything to worry about. I mean, I don't think any teacher, and, and it ought to be said, and it ought to be said from the top of the school, make a great argument for I'd love that kid who asked me, I don't know which side he was on, but that's like a great question. It's like, you know, if you're hesitant to express your point of view because everybody will disagree with you, you know that's a phenomenal. You should. You could. You could spend literally. You know. You could call a school think session afternoon and spend an afternoon talking about that. Where is the room and the space for minority opinions? We have. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, when I a lot of the teaching that I do is about leadership, and so I asked Jews to name leaders, and they always name Moshe. And I always say, okay, and who told Moshe that he was governing wrong? The answer is his father-in-law. It's a great piece of the Torah. But like, you know, there's a room for dissent and Moshe became a better leader because Jethro said to him, you have to stop making all the decisions yourself. So that cuts always. You know, I think literally, I don't know how this works, but but any student who was really convinced that she was being um, punished for the substance of her arguments by a teacher would have a right to go to department supervisor or the principal. And by the way, lots of students run into this on the issue of I don't know, personal appearance, personal behavior. Obviously you have to follow the rules of the school, but I understand that now within the rules of the school you can you can push the rules as to you know how you look and some people are inviting a kind of standout behavior and probably my guess is, talking to faculty, that a student who really sort of looks looks different, acts different, is probably more likely to tug, just because people are all human, is to tug a teacher's chain the wrong way and be careful. Like, I'm not singling this student out because I don't like the way she dresses or I don't like the way she behaves or I don't... But it would extend to political argument also. I'm being a little careful in how I answer your question, um, maybe, because... I think there are to- places and times where this crosses the line, and I bet I don't know exactly where I stand on this, in terms of teachers, not in terms of teachers and grading, in terms of teachers. So, there is a professor of something at Brown, for the last two years he was giving, both in his classroom and on the campus, but not in his classroom, giving speeches that basically were eugenics. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge issue, and I have no idea how it was resolved, but my granddaughter was you know, beside herself. that the administration was going too far in defending his right to say what he wanted and that he had a position of leadership and that he was, and so, and I don't mean, I don't know how that one got resolved, but I do remember thinking, okay, we we don't know all the answers on this issue. It's like, how far does freedom of speech go?
3: I'm just continuing with this piece on education. Um, you mentioned that there used to be a lot of like civics classes that don't really exist in high schools anymore. I know at least at Heschel, we have current events every so often in history class. If we can't, you know, we already have a dual curriculum, it's kind of difficult to squeeze in more classes. but if so if we can't have another class dedicated to civics, kind of how to incorporate this like information that is crucial. I don't know, but curriculum. I mean,
2: I mean no, I noah, noah, noah got this. I didn't come here with this like notion in mind, but I was kept kind of pushing him to sort of say like, you know, have a discussion with faculty about, about how this is done. So I went to an unnamed private school in New York a hundred years ago around the time of the dinosaurs. Um, top quality education, I'm sure, sort of rivaling. I was probably a political minority as a Democrat. Great classes, great teachers. I can't possibly thank them enough for how much I learned. But I, my actual favorite two times of the week it was the same teacher, was a was a low credit current events class and a no credit debate club. It was the same woman taught those, and the whole premise of that was like learn what's actually going on. Um, and although Heschel may be better than most, one of the things that's true even about really good schools teaching American history is not only that they stop teaching civics as a separate class, but that their American history ends um, at a point that the teachers feel. It's a generalization. But the teachers feel very comfortable with it because it moves way into the teacher's life. But it's absurd for the students. Like, if you, I don't know what you use, but you use a textbook that, I'm trying to think about time, that ends with, um, you know, the aftermath of the... Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, and the Assassination Era—that's all before you guys were born. And I know teachers, I know people who teach you, like just can't get that through their heads that, like, you know, you're teaching these students, but you know, their lives were shaped. And this is a huge issue in terms of um, presidential politics. What does it mean? I'm not saying it defines where you stand, but adults, people my age, have to think about what does it mean. That a Heschel, that a relatively engaged Heschel senior, only knew Barack Obama as president. You know, whereas I think in terms of the trajectory of like, a, like I don't know, I'd have to count them. I don't know how many pre- people presidents. Probably eight people have been president in my conscious lifetime, good, bad, and different. But it just it's like a different way of looking at the world. So. Mm-hmm. I think history classes have to come more up to sort of where we are or there has to be a current events class and the current events class. So I guess I would, in my head, I'm thinking about it as like, I'm not sure this is fair, but sort of, there's all of ancient history, European history, all of that, which which students have to learn. There's American history because we're Americans. Um, There's Jewish history, also ancient and, and more contemporary. Then there's like the history of, the last 10 or 15 years which has sort of shaped everything and then there's like what's in the newspaper today that's a lot to cover and so I think there has to be a conscious effort on the part of the school given assemblies like that given what's going on given the fact that there are differences of opinion and debate is like okay what what can we provide and cover so
1: um, thinking a little bit about history I know that a lot of times like Jewish organizations and other organizations will uh, kind of use Jewish history as like a call to action and think about like historical compa- comparisons. How is what's happening now in conversation with the past? Do you find that those com- historical comparisons, not necessarily in a Jewish context, but historical comparisons to the modern day, are sometimes reductive or are they always useful? And how should we use historical comparisons to the present?
2: I guess the simple answer to that would be thoughtfully. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I I, um, I saw this play last night called What the Constitution Means to Me. It's a one-woman, not-quite-one-woman show downtown. its I won't go into the whole detail about it, but there's a point at which there's a debate. Uh, my husband and I are unclear as to how much of this is pre-staged or not. But there's a debate on stage between this woman, who is basically the central act- actor, and a high school student, I mean selected. there, are two different high school students who play this role. And the essence of the debate last night was given that the Constitution and fill in the blank only represented white male property owners doesn't do this doesn't do that should we just get rid of the constitution and write a new one or should we keep the constitution and try to improve it and it was a fantastic debate and it was all staged but they had the audience voting you know and and so just personal to your question i found i thought the indictment of the constitution was great and i definitely put up my hand for we should keep the constitution and, and improve on it. So I think, so that's sort of an answer. It's like history is important, but think about what place. And I do think, I guess I probably, I like your question, I would come down, which might surprise some of the people who know me, as a, a strong argument in favor of, look at history. It's not, it's not going to tell us exactly what to do, but let's look at the story, both Jewish history and American history.
3: Um, So I don't know if it was you or one of the teachers who asked the question um, during the assembly who mentioned that AJWS was very um, involved in helping non-Jewish minority groups. Um, And as I'm sure you know, the Pittsburgh shooter explained that he went in to kill Jews because of Hyas and this commitment to helping non-Jewish refugees come into the United States. As someone who worked for I mean, I don't know that we can really compare them to high, compare AWS to highest, but just in general, an organization that helps other minorities. What was your reaction to that statement? Um, well, I think it should be, we
2: should, we should, you know, each of these shootings is so terrifying that it's hard to sort of look at a what was the motive of the shooter, race based, faith based. And what what does that say to us or about us? Um, and what is so broadly it's important to look. I thought that what was actually dramatic for the Jewish community, although it really feels very raw to be discussing this so fast, was that this shooter could not have been clearer. He was killing Jews because we're Jews. Was killing Jews because we don't belong, which is which is new, not. Not new, new, but is not the way most people have been talking about Jews in America um, in the last in the lifetime of certainly most of you. And he was particularly targeting Jews at this synagogue because there's a Jewish organization that helps non-Jews, um, and migrants are fill in the blank bad, dangerous, evil, corrupting the the purity of the country. So. I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to be misunderstood in this, this is a broadcast, but there's a, this is a pretty dramatic sort of set of, like, who Jews are. And, and from my judgment, maybe this is what you're asking, highest, I love American Jewish World Service. American Jewish World Service was founded to be a Jewish organization working for human rights in the non-Jewish world. Mm-hmm. Uh, highest gets huge... Um, shout out, not in the Jewish, only in the Jewish community, but in the broader community for being a not-for-profit organization that actually redefined its mission. Um, and it's a history that's worth talking about, and it's a, you should ask your student body, your fellow students, to find out which organizations help their families. Probably 40% of the student body here was helped by HIAS. Another 30% was helped by an organization that doesn't exist anymore called which stood for New York Association for New Americans, um, but highest when it, they redefined their purpose in the last ten to fifteen years, adopted what has to be um, the best possible slogan, which is: We used to help refugees because they were Jewish. Now we help refugees because we're Jewish. Can't be better. You know, and that's the essence of it. That's a, that's a huge essence of what I'm talking about. So I just think we have a sort of dramatic story here, and that's why I was talking to the students who were looking to see whether there were bipartisan issues on which to work. I would recommend immigration. And there's gonna be a split of opinions, but unless you sort of are slavishly committed to one or the other party, it's not gonna be along party lines. And it ought to be along Jewish lines. And we, had, I spoke for the whole year after the explosion of Syrian refugees two or three years ago in your lifetime—it's not even an issue that AWS works on. But when I was speaking, in, for lots of reasons. But when I was speaking in synagogues, if I made a reference to what well, we now have a sort of a question about immigration, which ought to matter to us as to, somebody in every shul would put up their hands and say, uh, "I'm for immigration, but these people are terrorists." And I was like, "Excuse me, these people are fleeing terrorism." Facts and opinion. You know, so where do we stand on people fleeing oppression? Where do we stand on the right of Muslims to be able to go to their own country and come back? And these are issues on which, I'm sorry to say, there's a vast amount of, of biased opinion that's factually incorrect. So, but yes, I have high praise for highest. Now, I want to say one other thing about this, because this notion of Jews helping non-Jews, which is like an AJWS issue, which we're very proud of, For example, I've had donors in the last 20 years who said I love American Jewish World Service because you're a Jewish organization that helps non-Jews. My response to that is always, thank you. And all of your local Jewish organizations also help non-Jews. And people say, no they don't. And I'm like, excuse me, walk into an organization, go to the Hebrew Home and Hospital on 106th Street. That population is not all Jewish go to Jewish Family Service in any town. We should feel unbelievably proud. Most Jewish Family Services around the United States are like well-staffed agencies with good social workers and good approaches, and people seek them out. And you'll occasionally get, I will occasionally get some somebody in the Jewish community, oh, well, we just do that because it's the law. That is, you can't get federal money if you don't. No, we do it because we're told to care for the other and the stranger. And I think I'd be quite direct here. I think it's a shonda that federations around the country don't advertise the fact that, that our agencies are so good that they are full of diverse populations, diverse as to race and nationality because, and faith, because people appreciate the service that we give. We should be so proud of that. And instead, there's lots of really knowledgeable Jews who think that we're the first Jewish organization that they ever ran into, or that now AJW is in the highest? So, oh my God, they actually take care of non-Jews. So does the Meals on Wheels program down the street. I mean, it's it's astounding to me what sort of people don't know, and in this case, I think the Jewish community doesn't tell them. So I think that's too bad. I think we should be really proud of that. When I was my first introduction to this, I was actually younger than you are. I had a student internship, summer placement at Jewish Family Service in the Bronx. This is a million years ago. And um, my job, my summer job, was to run the playroom. So mothers would come with a, with a baby in a stroller, or, and they would dump the baby in the playroom so that they could go see their caseworker. And because that was me and always breaking the rules, I would chat with the mothers about like, you know, how often do you come here? Do you like coming here? And basically the conversation was always the same. It was like, oh my God, I am so lucky that I got sent to the Jewish. That's what they call You know, some of my friends just get helped at the welfare, and it's terrible. And some of my friends go to the church, and they give food, but they don't really help people with their problems. I just love the Jewish.
1: I think um, we have time for one more question.
0: In light of the talk you gave, what would you say to your 18-year-old or 17-year-old self?
2: Um, I would just say keep it up. Stand out. Um, Be an upstander don't be afraid to have a minority opinion. I had quite a bit of experience with that by the time I was 18, and it was like, yes, this is the right road. But I feel like I had Heschel, and I feel like I had some pretty dramatic examples of activism, and I feel like some of that is missing. In my adult life, I can't remember when, let's say in the probably in the 1980s, there was a whole uproar about um, the the lack of, Uh, political freedom, the degree of political oppression and repression in some of the Central American countries. And I was with an organization, don't remember the organization, where we brought interfaith clergy and we did a vigil on First Avenue across from the United Nations to sort of make this point. And there was a reporter who was a podcast person before podcasts were invented. She had a big tape recorder and she was working for somebody and she was like sent to interview us. And with all due respect, she was your age, but she was like clueless. So she was like, what is this about? I told her, well, why are these people here? I said, well, that's that's the bishop of the Episcopal Bishop of New York. That's a famous rabbi. It's an interfaith effort. Well, why are you here? Well, because the UN is across the street, and this is the closest we can get. And she just kept saying, like, I don't see what these people on this street corner has to do with this issue. And so finally, in my rudest way, I said, you know, we stopped a war once. Which was just a, re- a reference to anti-war activism. We did end the Vietnam War sooner. Ask your parents, um, because of street opposition. And people may argue that was the wrong role, but I obviously think it was the right role. But when I, mean, I was just with, so, the answer is I was doing that young. And I guess I guess if you ask us in the sort of way way in which you asked it, like what advice I, w- I would probably going back, and I think I do this with my grandchildren, but I would probably go back and say. It's going to be longer and harder than you imagine.
0: I hope you all enjoyed that wonderful interview. Thank you to Ruth for taking the time to speak to us and for sharing such pertinent ideas about our current political climate, civic engagement, and education, among other topics. In light of Ruth's talk and what we just learned, I challenge the listeners to engage more deeply in issues affecting our local and broader communities, to engage in civil discourse, and of course, to listen to each other. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening to the first episode of Season 2 of Pod in Search of Man, the Heschel High School podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes. Goodbye.